Okay, so we are in James 1, and thank you for uh, coming to this class. I, when I looked at the um, other classes being offered, I thought, oh, this is, <laughs> this is going to be a much smaller class that I'll be teaching uh, this time around. Um, my wife read the, the things, and she was like, you know Lee's teaching, right? I was like, yeah, I know, I know he's teaching. <laughs> she was like, that class looks really interesting. I was like, I know, I know, I'd like to go to it too. And I was like, you know you're free to go to it. And, and it was kind of like when you give someone a present and they're like, oh, I, I like this. You know, this is what I wanted. And I'm like, you know, you don't have to stay in here. She's like, no, this is what I want to do. Uh, so <laughs> she will be here uh, maybe because she feels obligated. Yeah. Oh, I said I didn't have that option. <laughs> Well, good. So I know there will be at least two people in here um, as the semester progresses. Uh, I love the book of James. I've never done an in-depth study until now. This is part of the reason I want to teach Sunday school classes because it gives me a kind of accountability to get in and study deeply. I've always found it life-giving, and I'm excited about really digging into it. It's uh, the genre matters some as we pay attention to how it's written. It's it's something like wisdom literature. If you've ever read Proverbs, it's it seems like you know a handful of sayings, which then shapes how we read it. Um, I think it's a good idea to read it thoughtfully and closely, but not uh, legalistically. If I can get my uh, computer to respond here, or my anyway. Um, so, for example, if you've ever read Proverbs, which is wisdom literature, you may have heard the proverb: "Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it." Think of this as general wisdom. This is good advice. This is typically the way things work. But it's not a guarantee or a law or something like that. There are plenty of parents who train their children well, and um, it ended up not working out for their kids. Um, So this isn't certainty. That's not what James or Proverbs gets us. Uh, A great one in here, which I can't get my um, iPad to respond to, is in Proverbs where it says something like, uh, Don't rebuke a fool or you'll become a fool too. And then the immediately following proverb is, rebuke a fool lest he uh, think he's wise, right? Don't do it and do it, Uh, which is teaching us how to read this a little bit. You pay attention to it, you read it closely, but you take it as uh, kind of typical or general advice, not as uh, this is always the way things always are. So when we hear stuff like consider it joy when you experience trials, we think, okay, there's something true about this, but there's also a sense in which we can bring this into conversation with the need to to um, recognize the brokenness in situations. So uh, maybe a little heads up. Uh, Wisdom literature can also feel a little choppy. Uh, So it doesn't always flow as smoothly as something like a letter or a gospel. So don't be thrown off by that. It's just part of the genre. Okay, so let's get into it. James 1.1. We don't know uh, for certain who this author is, but it's likely Jesus' brother. Uh, which is interesting for a couple reasons. One, if it is James, the brother of Jesus, uh, he's got this close familial connection to Jesus, so that might make him seem like he matters. And he seems to be kind of the head of the, um, the church after Jesus leaves, or at least the Jerusalem church. So here's a pretty important figure, uh, James. And what's fascinating, if this is who it really is, is how he identifies himself uh, here with, uh, in the opening. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't see himself as uh, brother of Jesus or as leader of the church, but his primary identity 
is servant. We can fly past these, this first verse, but what I think it does, if we slow down, is it helps us see James's disposition, and it invites us to adopt the same disposition. Who is he? Fundamentally not leader of the church, not brother of Jesus. He is servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord there can also be master. It's the same word, or it gets translated the same. So he's the servant. Who's his master? His brother. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I've mentioned this in previous classes, but Christ is a title meaning Messiah. When you see Christ, that's King Jesus. That's the one that Israel's been longing for. This isn't a last name. He's not Mr. Christ or Rabbi Christ. He is Messiah Jesus. So here is his, his opening disposition. He is James, servant of Master Jesus, Messiah. And this, from this position, he's going to move forward, calling us to wisdom. I could almost stop here, I think, if we could just get this. If you could replace your name, Josh, my primary disposition, servant of the Master, Jesus, Messiah. And if we could just get that, how much wiser might our lives be? And this is where I think James is going to to point us to. As Jesus is Messiah, and he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or in the diaspora. Um, So whoever this is written to, he he refers to them as though they're like the 12 tribes of Israel. They're They're like the restored or the renewed Israel. Jesus, Messiah, the rightful king, has come in and he set up Israel more like it was supposed to be. Uh, in this scattered people. So, opening up, before we even kind of get moving, we're reminded proper disposition for wisdom is first and foremost seeing ourselves as servants of the Master Jesus. I'm not primarily Josh, assistant professor at Lipscomb. I'm Josh, a servant of the Master Jesus, who is Messiah and who has called me to be in his, among his people Israel. You can already feel the kind of shift that might call us to within our world. And so he opens up verse 2. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Okay, so this is a a weird opening here. Um, The language of consider or to think or to uh, be wise, uh, this, according to at least Luke Timothy Johnson, I didn't fact check him here, but he says this in the first chapter of James, James, 17 times this kind of uh, language of consider shows up. So what he's already getting us to do is to think about how we think. How do you think? Here's how you're going to consider uh, life, because there are competing ways to look at life. And in the way James looks at life, he looks at it in such a way uh, that he can say, consider it joy when you face trials of any kind. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Whatever joy is, um, as he says, consider it nothing but joy, it's not synonymous with pleasure or happiness. And this is where the larger biblical witness can help uh, maybe make sense of this. We've seen Jesus go through trials, and he doesn't just smile the whole way through and skip, right? He is in anguish, he cries. Uh, We see the same with Paul. So whatever James is getting at, it's not just pleasure or happiness. But what makes sense of him saying consider it joy is because he has a different end in mind. Why might you consider it joy when you face trials? Because it's shaping you. 
because it's giving you endurance, and endurance is helping you be mature and complete. See, it's already a different disposition. It's already a, a, um, a counter-cultural kind of wisdom. If your goal is kind of hedonistic, you want pleasure and you want to avoid pain, then there is no sense in which you can consider suffering joy. But if your goal is not avoidance of pleasure, or avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure, but if your goal is becoming mature and complete and growing in perfection, well, then you realize that even suffering cannot get in that way. Because God can take whatever comes and he can use it to shape you into the person he calls you to be. This is why you can consider it joy. Not happiness, not roses, but I know that whatever happens, no matter what, God is in control and he can make uh, possible um, what he has called me to be and what he wants to happen. Nothing's going to stop that. Satan's going to throw trials and tribulations in your way. Guess what? God can use them for good. And that's why we can consider it joy, because we have this uh, different perspective on life. And there are two kind of main ideas besides that opening thing, that disposition of that we are servants and Jesus is master. Two things that I think this first chapter of James um, helps us um, adopt. The first one that we see here is it's calling us as we, it's calling us to be wise to have a God's eye point of view. A worldly point of view, there's nothing good from suffering. A God's eye point of view is that in his providence, he can use suffering to create in you who he wants you to be. He can take any difficulty and shape it for good. So will you take the kind of horizontal point of view, those on the same level as you, or a God's eye perspective? If you adopt a God's eye perspective, it then shapes the way you even experience something as significant as trials. So to read this again, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, If you're in here for Hebrews, Hebrews is calling us to uh, pursue perfection. Not in like, you always feel like you're never good enough, but this is who we're called to be. We're called to be like Jesus. And James is is in the same stream. What matters? What matters is that we become the kind of people uh, that are Christ-like. We follow our Messiah and our King on this path of goodness and growth and virtue. Verse 5, if any of you is lacking in wisdom, so this is getting to that same point, how in the world am I going to see trials as joy? Anyone actually tried to do this? You go through a hard time and think, okay, how am I going to see this as God working through good and it's almost impossible? Well, it's almost impossible because we need uh, wisdom from above and it's a slow process. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to you. Uh, if we're going to adopt the God's eye point of view, we ask. Prayer simply makes sense in this perspective. Um, if, if what you're wanting to do is see a different or a God's perspective, then of course you pray to God for it. Ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. So James' theology, his view of God, is primarily a God who is generous and giving. And that's, that's an important... Um, uh, kind of bedrock or foundation for what follows. Verse 6, But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. When he says ask in faith, um, 
not doubting. It could be simple as just believe it's going to happen. Uh, I wonder if there's more to it in this context, that you don't just kind of ask believing, but part of faith is what just came before it is you trust that this God is good and that he is giving. Uh, If you don't have a view, uh, if you don't by faith believe that God is good and generous and gives to those who ask, then it's really hard to get out of the gate and ask him for that wisdom. Uh, But the word faith can also mean faithfulness. Ask in faithfulness. Um, This this happens uh, time to time when I realize that I am not having a God's eye point of view. And I think, you know, say I'm in a um, very rare argument with my wife. And I think I could ask God to give me his perspective on this, but I don't really want to. Because then I might have to be humble, and I might have to admit I'm wrong. And so rather than asking in faithfulness, I just would rather ignore his perspective. Um, And so maybe that's a piece of it here. When you ask God for wisdom, you have to ask with uh, a willingness to accept it. Because it might uh, call for you to lay down your arms or to change your upcoming actions. Ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Um, This is again where I think we take this proverbial wisdom and we, um, we pay attention to what we know elsewhere of if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Um, I believe, help my unbelief. Those kind of things. All of us are going to deal with some level of doubt. Um, So this isn't a, you can't have any doubt or you might as well not pray. Uh, But it is nevertheless a call to take seriously um, our need to grow in faith and trust that he is the kind of God who will listen and respond. All right, first eight verses here, um, kind of are a section. Uh, So questions at this point on this? He covers a lot of ground in this first chapter, so... No? May I offer yeah. a thought? And of course. In verse 3, I just think that is so, um, in the past year or so, I think I've really learned um, through some counseling and reading that, um, you know, tr- having struggles is not an indication of necessarily something being wrong, but of life. And that just... I think that verse just really speaks out with the way that the chance to grow is what my translation says. When your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. That in relationships and in life, and we, you know, really growth comes primarily in the midst of struggle and conflict. Mm-hmm. And and so, especially in our culture, we're so drawn to, you know, conflict avoidance, yeah, conflict and and find and feeling like everything is okay that um, we, we miss out on the opportunity to grow in our relationships or in our faith because it's just, it's just unnatural for us to accept that, oh, this is actually an opportunity and I'm only going to grow. I would, I would go so far as to say we will only grow in the midst of trial and conflict, not when everything seems, quote, okay. Yeah, that's great. I have, a, um, I have some Coptic Christian students um, in my class, and they told me a, a kind of a Coptic proverb was, to avoid conflict is to avoid God. I thought, well, what a, you know, it's getting at that same idea. If we hope to grow, whether with God or in our relationships, um, then conflict helps. 
Uh, I mean, that's, yeah, very, very well said. Anything else before we move into some teaching on wealth? Yeah. I think it's interesting, too. I mean, this whole kingdom perspective, things that without the kingdom, things that are trials for us now would not have been trials. Say more. Um, because we have a different perspective in things, and things that we would have just naturally done become things in which the kingdom challenges our lives. And I think that's part of what James is saying as far as joy goes is the fact that we realize that there's some transformation that's happening. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are trials that we can't avoid that are mm -hmm. common to everyone, but I think the other part of that is, is a perception of the things that we are being challenged by are different now because of the fact that we have this kingdom perspective. Yeah, yeah, and I think that it's the, James kind of seems to go back and forth between you know, this individual stuff and communal stuff. There's, there's stuff that applies to each of us, but applies to us as a whole as well. And I think this kingdom community is feeling pushback because they're, they're operating in weird ways. And it's, it's um, creating, yeah, conflict and uh, persecution. Uh, verse 9. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the picture of doubt to me... Um, I always think of doubt as I don't think it's true mm -hmm. or I'm not convinced. This picture of doubt is instability. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know what to do with it. It just is a different picture than I had usually had of what it means to doubt. Yeah. James, James will bring together kind of faith and action so closely that doubt isn't only something up here, but it seems to be an instability. Or he says unstable in all his ways. And way is a way of life. So it's it, there is a, a both and to this. What you believe and what you do very much go go together. I see another hand pop up. Yeah, um, on that doubt thing, one day I just had to go do a little study on it because I like to doubt. Um, <laughs> and it, it was real interesting because I got the idea that it takes what you know and you purposely rip it apart. <coughs> and, you know, I was like, well, you know, there's doubt. But... Now that I've kind of gotten a little bit older and I've seen the way people process things, just in day-in, day-out stuff, I've seen people just doubt how a bank works. You know, I had an overdraft one time, therefore all banks are bad. You, you know, it's such an extreme that I finally saw that that's kind of the doubting that I think James is talking about, taking what you know, taking what makes sense, and then tearing it apart with things that are just fears and irrational thoughts and it, it just it just puts a hole in your heart because you have nothing stable to hold on to because you're tearing apart everything which surely you didn't mean that when you said that even though it's on a piece of paper hmm. it can't be true because I saw it one time and it didn't happen <coughs> all times it doesn't work. so maybe less sincere doubt and more self delusion Well, just <laughs> maybe intentional
an unwillingness to trust. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's a better way of saying. Yeah, I think that I can see how that might tie into the context here, um, more so than just not believing at all. Did I see another hand? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he does not stop until he calls out hires and bills. And so the trials that we have are an opportunity of a gift to trust him in a way that we haven't before. And when it talks about in verse 8, a man being of two minds, hesitating due to this irresolute, and is unstable and unreliable and uncertain about everything he thinks, feels, and decides. I was reading this recently, and it hit me that that does not mean that person is not saved. Hmm. That person is not living with the peace and the joy and the love that only can come from God when everything around them is in such turmoil, and they know that the only way out is for God, and they have seen what it talks about, I think it's in 1 John, those who are young in their faith, it might be 2 John, if it's the first or second chapter, uh, and then the ones who have gone through trials, for young adults and then the ones who are mature, who are standing on the things that God has brought them through and it all interconnects for us to have a stronger foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ because this world is not easy and there are different levels and by the grace of God some people can go through and say you know, that they haven't dealt with serious things and others have dealt with things that they know that only God is the reason that they're still saved Thank you. <laughs> Not for hushing, for sharing. <laughs> All right, verse. One thing, please. Yes. You know, we have trials in life that they come and they go. But sometimes in life, the trials are so overwhelming, life-consuming, that these verses are not comfort. In fact, they're indicting. They make you feel even worse. Because mm-hmm. The situation in my life is so severe, even death sounds like a pleasant relief. Mm-hmm. I don't have any joy. So these verses, they don't help much. Uh, and you, you, you ask your prayers for help for year after year, and the help doesn't seem to come. It becomes quite difficult. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to be negative, but no, no, I think sometimes it's difficult yeah. when you have a long life. Mm-hmm. You see things in your life that were really terrible. Yeah, I think this is where that that second or that bringing it in the conversation with other other scriptures is helpful. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis, but he talks about, you know, banging on the door, you know, trying to pray to God, and it feels like the door is slammed and bolted and locked from the inside kind of thing, that, that God is just, you know, absent. And I think that's a very real, this is, this is the lament psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we have to read James in tension with those things. And, uh, yeah, if we... If we use this to create guilt, and then we're reading it wrong. But if we read it in such a way that it's saying there is a different perspective, and we might struggle to adopt it, but, but we don't struggle as those without hope. Um, even in that suffering, we might have a, a little hope that things will be made right, and that one day, even if it feels forever away, there is, there is restoration to come. But if it wasn't for Jesus Messiah, there wouldn't be that glimmer of hope. Kind of brings to mind the uh, the slavery, the old Negro spirituals that took place. You know that they weren't 
they recognized life was bad. Mm -hmm. Not a good thing to be alive, but they were looking for something. They knew that someday there was going to be restoration. Someday everything was going to be made new. Someday things were going to be different. Yeah, good. Thank you, guys. Uh, verse 9, there's some confusion here about what exactly um, James is saying. And, it's, and the confusion is, um, is how much to draw a parallel between verse 9 and 10, by which I mean. Uh, it opens up, let the believer or let the brother who is lowly boast in being raised up. Okay, we know uh, some extent of how that might work. But verse 10, and let the rich and being uh, brought low. So the question is, is the rich person here considered a brother, even though it's not said, or a believer, or is the rich person here an outsider? Um, is that language of him being believer or brother implied? So that it might read, let the, let the brother who is lowly boast in being raised up and let the rich brother and being brought low. Um, so there's some debate about uh, how James's church is made up and what you do with the rich and a largely uh, poor um, community. So, assuming, let's hope so, because we're in a rich congregation, that um, that maybe this is referring to a rich brother, uh, it does cause us to ask questions about what does it mean for the rich uh, believer, the rich brother, the rich sister to be brought low as they enter into this community. Is it a bringing low of realizing that the things that the world thinks matters when you come into the kingdom community, you lose some of your status? because you're surrounded by people who realize that that stuff isn't important. This is one way in which you experience um, humbling. Uh, it should be at least part of it. Um, maybe there is a sense in which, too, becoming part of this community, as I think many generous people in here have realized, means that there is a certain amount of dispossession. There is a giving away. And with that giving away comes its own kind of humbling. You don't always have the nicest and the best, and those who are in your same bracket um, you no longer are keeping up with. Whatever it is, uh, there seems to be the sense that uh, the wealthy uh, experience a humbling as they enter into the kingdom community. Um, or the flip side is, the wealthy who are opposed to the kingdom community will be brought an ultimate humbling. Uh, Blessed are you who are poor, woe to you who are rich. If you haven't paid attention to this in James, so much of what James says seems like commentary on Jesus' sayings. Um, Because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. It's the end of verse 10. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. So I've said the first thing is James is calling us to a God's eye perspective, seeing things as God might. The second that we see in James is a long-term perspective. We don't look at the immediate as kind of where wisdom is found. We look long-term as where wisdom is found. Uh, short term, it looks like wealth and beauty is what matters. Long term, those things aren't so important. To get this idea across to my freshmen, I will play the, uh, if you ever watch the, the Oscars, they'll have the tribute to, um, to uh, you know, movie people or whatever, actors and actresses who've, who've passed away in the last year. And I play a few minutes of it, and they're bored to tears because they don't care about those people. And then I help them see that 50, 60 years ago, these were the it people. This is who everyone would be like and look like and emulate. And now you don't even care. In fact, you disdain them because wealth and beauty and success fades. 
And so if they want to pursue whatever is, you know, hip or whatever with MTV or pop culture, they can do that, but they're adopting a pretty uh, foolish short-term perspective on what matters. And instead, uh, the wise thing to do is to adopt a long-term perspective. And the long-term perspective is that you pursue that which is stable and lasting, which isn't wealth and beauty and success, but, as he's already called us to, uh, things like endurance and completion and growth. This stuff is what ultimately matters. Um, my, uh, my iPad kind of fritzed out on me, but uh, Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, uh, has the same language that perhaps James is borrowing, where uh, there is this perishing of the flowers of the field, but what lasts is the word of the Lord. This is what matters. Where is wisdom? Where is truth? It's in the word of the Lord. And so if we're thinking about wise and long-term perspective, we invest ourselves there and not uh, in fleeting things. Verse 12, Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So another call to endurance, um, to uh, kind of going through these tests and seeing it as something more than just suffering and difficulty. Uh, maybe if he's speaking communally and the community is being uh, persecuted, uh, there is uh, some hope there. Verse 13, no one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself, he himself tempts no one. Some, um, uh, some make a distinction between God's testing and maybe Satan's tempting. Um, maybe two sides of a similar coin there. Again, this is wisdom literature, so we don't press it too far, uh, this distinction. The idea is that God's not involved in the tempting business. God is not... Uh, got a little bit of evil in him, or he's kind of going to mess with you. Uh, but that God is good, as we've already seen, he is generous. Uh, and that our temptation, rather than saying, oh, I can't help it, this is God's doing, it's his will, I guess this is just how things are going to be, we should realize that uh, some of our temptation, some of our sin, uh, verse 14, uh, when one is tempted by one's own desire, excuse me, but one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it, then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. So there is this uh, progression. Uh, we have broken desires, and when we kind of uh, give in to those a little bit, we um, uh, then see that uh, that conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it does its work, gives birth uh, to death. Maybe the one of the the uh, easiest ways to see this is in addiction. Um, as the, the kind of door of addiction is open, uh, the allure or entice of whatever the substance might be um, conceives, gives birth to sin. And if you've seen people struggling with addiction, you can see how there is a kind of uh, a metaphorical death that can happen uh, through that. And it's not just substance. I think we all understand to some degree uh, the addiction of different kinds of sins. Um, whether it is um, um, lust or pride or anger or um, accumulation. Uh, there is uh, this kind of desire, and we give into it, and then it ends up taking over. Uh, but the good news is, is there's a contrast with what here is giving birth to death. Sin gives birth to death. There is God, the Father, who is going to give birth to us by the word of truth. So verse 17 Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
Father of Light's language here is perhaps referring to the Creator, the one who made light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So he's not fickle. He creates the lights and the lights change, but he is not going to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we should become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So sin gives birth to death. God, the generous and good father, which we've already seen, gives birth to us by the word of truth, which might mean the gospel or might mean Torah, whatever it is. Uh, it gives us life. Why? So verse 18, notice the purpose language here. In fulfillment of his purpose, in order that or so that, what's his goal? So that we could become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I think first fruits language here is maybe picking up on the first fruits sacrifice. We're to be the kind of people, uh, maybe Paul's language, living sacrifices. So again, think about the disposition. Servants, of Master Jesus. What are we called to? We're called to be like that restored Israel who is pursuing restoration and wholeness, whose goal is to grow in Christ-likeness, who are like living sacrifices as we are pursuing righteousness. This is what it means to stand uh, wisely in our world. And it's pretty obvious how that is not the typical um, natural stance. But this is his purpose. Verse 19, you must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. If you read kind of the the implication here, what are we supposed to be about? We're supposed to be pursuing God's righteousness, the setting things right uh, in ourselves and in our world. And so often our anger doesn't do that. Again, this is proverbial. It's not as though there's no room for anger. Jesus gets angry, God gets angry, Paul gets angry. It is not as though anger is the problem, but often what we do in our anger becomes problematic. Uh, how many times have we looked back about how we responded in anger and thought, essentially, that didn't produce God's righteousness? General advice, typically, you give in to your anger, it's not going to produce the righteousness of God, which is not to say anger is always bad. Anger can be a healthy emotion when things are wrong, um, but uh, we can allow it too easily to take over so that we're not producing the righteousness of God. Therefore, rid yourself of all sordidness, I'm in verse 21, and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. The language there, verse 21, rid, uh, yours might say something like take off or put off. It's something like disrobe. Uh, And maybe it's picking up on Christian, uh, early Christian baptismal practices of of taking off one, baptizing and putting on the white robe. some idea of that seems to maybe be picked up here. Uh, we are taking off one thing, and then we are putting on Christ. That's what you get elsewhere in the New Testament. You're taking off this. What our anger doesn't have the power to produce, verse 20, our anger doesn't produce God's righteousness. Guess what? Verse 21, God, through his word, his implanted word, has the power to save your souls. What our anger cannot do, God's word can. So that's why we put off one and take on another. Um, Also, what we see here is that our ability to grow in this and to pursue God's righteousness is seen as implanted. This isn't something we drum up on our, you know, by ourselves. This is a gift. This is part of where grace comes in. It's not just grace to go to heaven. It's grace to be able to be these kind of people. There is this seed, you might say, implanted is the language here. But we do have a role to 
maybe sticking with the metaphor, to water it, to nurture it, to feed it, uh, so that it might grow and we might be the kind of people who can uh, pursue the kingdom or produce God's righteousness. Verse 22, um, this is a, uh, one of those metaphors that I think really sticks with you and is meaningful. We'll read all the way through 25. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers act, who act, they will be blessed in their doing. So the analogy, um, and the Greek is, is especially helpful here, um, it's not just you look at yourselves, but you look at your natural face. In the mirror, you see your natural face. You see who you are. And what James is saying is, when you look in the Word, that is actually showing you your natural face. And the, the language natural here, genesis, uh, genesis um, in Greek, it's um, who gave birth to you? God, by the Word of truth. What is your natural face? You look, as it says in here, in the perfect law of liberty, the Word of truth. The glass mirror gives you a certain sense of who you are, but your true natural self happens when you look at the word of truth. And that can mean something like scripture or the gospel or Jesus. Who are you ultimately when you take a God's eye or a long-term perspective is not who you see in the mirror, it's who you see uh, in the word of truth. You primarily, from the word of the gospel, are one who is loved by God so much that he sent his son to die for you. And you are one who is called to be a servant of the master Jesus, a kind of first fruits, like a renewed, restored Israel who is pursuing the righteousness of God. That is who your natural self truly is. That is what God has given birth, so to speak, to in you, primarily. So we look to scripture, we read these things, not so we can find a list of rules and, and you know, okay, I got to keep this, or I guess Christianity says I need to do this. But what this is getting at seems to be is that this is not just some rules and some proverbs, but this is identity. We read this to find out who we are. And if we don't come back to it, if we don't stare into the mirror, we might forget who we really are. And so we'll be out there kind of unstable in all our ways. But when we keep coming back and we keep looking closer and closer, we discover who we truly are from God's point of view. And we get a long-term perspective so that we might live that out. And so it's not surprising as we close here, as we understand who we are, verse 27, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's worth highlighting right there. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And this is such a natural progression. When you find your identity in the word of truth, in the gospel, what's your identity? That God loved you when you were seemingly unlovable. What is the natural ethic? Is that you love those whom the world sees as maybe unlovable or having nothing to offer. The orphans and widows in that society would have been the marginalized. When we know who we are, it only makes sense that we love those who seem um, unimportant. Because God looked at us and he saw something meaningful. And he saw someone he wanted to be in a relationship with. And who are we uh, to not do the same to those others? Yes? I have a question about the word or the word religion. 
Can you expound on that a little bit? What is the word um, I barely remember what I um, what I read on this. It, it's not a common word, if I remember correctly, but it's it's something like it's thraskeia, but it's not a a normal word. I think it's the idea is something like that which pertains to God, maybe. But don't quote me on that. I should cover up this. So, um, but I, I don't know more than than that. So I can try to look that up for you. And, um, but it's not a common word. Well, I will close with. Can I, it, can yes, I of course. It, Jerry, your your question. Are you trying to clarify what what he's talking about when he says the word here? Is that what you're saying? No, the in verse twenty seven, religion that God our Father accepts. Oh, okay. Because it, I got you. Okay. Um, but because it bothers me, because for so many years I read when it said word, I would read. Well, he's talking about the Bible. Mm-hmm. He's talking, and I, I don't think he necessarily is talking about the Bible. I think he's talking about what the gospel, as you mm-hmm. said, and that that threw me for so long because. Yeah. Yeah, and James is writing this. They didn't have a Bible. They might have Old Testament, but they wouldn't have had the, the 27 New Testament books that we consider. So it's, it's something it seems to be like Scripture as fulfilled and the word of the gospel in Christ. So it's, it's centered in Christ, um, but it's certainly connected to the word of Torah that goes before and the teaching of, of Jesus. So here is Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 that I think sums this up nicely, and then we'll be done. Now this I affirm and insist on the Lord. You must no longer live as the pagans live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. They have lost all sensitivity. And that is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to clothe yourselves with a new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All right. Thank you all. May you be those who take a uh, God's eye perspective and a long-term perspective. James 2 next week.